Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, we're now accepting applications for a Network Catalyst Accelerator program. Founders in our program have gone on to raise money from Lux, Spark, A16Z, Slow, First Round, Sousa, Homebrew, Mavron, Obvious, NFX, Signifier, and many more. Learn more and apply at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. We are super, super lucky today to have, uh, to have Mike Maples, uh, founder of, uh, of Floodgate. Uh, Mike is a uh, OG's OG. Uh, he's been doing this for, for so long and he's been so successful. And he's, uh, uh, one of the things I really appreciate Mike is he's all about giving back. Uh, he has a, uh, you know, we've all learned so much from him about, uh, about the weeds of, of venture from, from how to be a good investor to the ins and outs of, you know, building a firm and portfolio construction, uh, but also company building. He has a, he has a great podcast called, uh, starting greatness, Highly recommend uh, you listen to it. He had this medium post that we're going to get into called uh, "How to Build a Breakthrough." Uh, Mike has sort of classified the different stages of of company building. We did one episode on on value hacking, and th- this one is going to be about uh, insight hacking, which is so appropriate to the to the on deck community. And um, before we get into it, just want to say, uh, Mike, thank you for taking the time to to give back and spend time with uh, with on deck today. Yeah. Well, hey, thanks for having me. I, you know, I've heard great things about this community, so it's uh, it's fun to have a chance to engage any way I can. So, uh, you know, it's a pleasure to be involved. Perfect. Perfect. So, so Mike, let, let's uh, let, let's get started. Why don't we talk about uh, the the why behind why, uh, why you wrote the post, how to build a breakthrough, how you sort of see insight hacking as it's different from sort of the, the, the startup canon before it, sort of lean startup, the Steve Blank, of which you're, you're, you're very close to and have done a lot of work with those guys. What, you saw, what niche you saw your post and, and your ideas filling? Yeah, so the, the, the main thing I got interested in is um, you, can, you can get product market fit for an idea that's just not a big enough idea. And so, um, and you end up iterating to a local maximum. And so, you know, this is an important question for me because I'm investing in companies before they're really companies yet, right? So Twitch was Justin TV and Lyft was Zimride and Okta was Sasher. And so in all those cases, had we had we invested in it for what it was, we wouldn't have done it. So then what are we investing in? And we concluded that we were investing in a killer set of founders and a powerful insight. And so then you start to ask, well, what makes a powerful insight? And so I started to spend time with Eric Reese and Steve Blank, and they said, that's a great question. That's not what we were really trying to solve with customer development and lean startups, right? So with customer development and lean startups, what they were really trying to solve was a lot of startups failed because they build a product and then go get customers. And they, you know, they, they failed because of product marketing failures in, in many cases or, or didn't understand the importance of applying the scientific method of getting product market fit. So I got interested in the question, is there a scientific method for getting powerful ideas in the first place? Because, you know, when you're a founder, you're making a bet and you're, you're betting your time, which you're not going to get back. And so how do you know if the bet's worth it? So, so I spent some time working on that. And that's, that's when I started to come up with these frameworks around insight hacking and backcasting. 
And I, I guess if I were going to net it out, customer development basically says, um, get out of the building and run experiments based on a set of uh, business model and customer hypotheses. Uh, what insight hacking says is get out of the present. Too many startups are started by analyzing the conditions of the present and looking for white space. And what I assert is that um, you might have a startup with an okay outcome doing that. If, if the metaphor of customer development is your scientist running experiments, the metaphor of insight development is your time traveler living in the future. And you're trying to understand um, what are plausible, possible, and preposterous potential futures that are more probable than people in the present realize based on some type of insights that you develop. And so that's kind of the, the process. And then, you know, you kind of, you, you, there's a set of steps that I recommend that, that get you to the, the sort of, do I want to cross the Rubicon and make this bet and plunge in and now, and now do customer development and I'm a startup now. And, and let, let's talk about those steps. Are, are those steps the, the different inflections? Yeah. So you start with inflections. So the, um, what I, the reason inflections are important is that they're the motive power of a startup, right? They are the rock in David's slingshot when he fights Goliath. They are the force multipliers that give the entrepreneur, you know, a, a sort of an Archimedes lever, right, to move the world. And, and so in inflections, they, they, they are powerful enablers that exist independent of the startup itself. There, there are four or five types that I focus on. One, the most important one to me is technology inflections. And this is things like Moore's law or the, the dollars required to sequence a genome uh, or, uh, you know, speed of bandwidth or, you know, uh, the amount of processing capacity uh, for an edge device or, you know, whatever the case may be, the accuracy of a GPS locator for, per dollar. Regular, and then you've got uh, adoption inflections. And an adoption inflection might be, I believe, smartphone adoption is going to go from 10% in 2010 to 50% by 2015. It's um, something that is becoming... Um, exponentially more used by people. And then you've got regulatory inflections. Uh, the, the most recent one I've been tracking is um, you can do telemedicine across state lines. And so, um, you know, that, that creates a window of opportunity for somebody to build a company premised on that when you couldn't have in the past. And then there's, uh, this is more subtle, belief inflections. And we're seeing a lot of these come out of COVID, you know, probably fewer doctors and patients thought that they would do as many telemedicine visits as they'll now believe they can do in the future. Probably more people think they can work from home more often than they would have in the past. And you see these in politics too. Like when I was a kid, I wouldn't have anticipated that gay marriage would have happened in, in my lifetime, that, that, that people would have just said, okay, yeah, that's fine. You know, look, not everybody agrees, but I'd say it's kind of the mainstream belief now. So it's like, a belief inflection is when something goes from being a heresy to seeming pretty reasonable to most people. And then you've got uh, the fifth one that I haven't fully developed, I call paradigm inflection. And this is a, an idea that's invented that may not have been invented for another hundred years. You know, so like in science, the, the special theory of relativity 
somebody would have come up with that if not Einstein. You know, a bunch of scientists were kind of, they had a beat on it. You know, Niels Bohr, somebody would have figured it out. But Einstein's general theory of relativity, some believe, might nobody might have come up with it for another 100 years or 200 years. And so it's one for that reason, it's one of the greatest intellectual achievements of humanity. It, it was just a breakthrough insight that just happened. Just a, um, And I think that the one that I've seen recently that qualifies for this would be Bitcoin. I don't think there's a huge technology why now to Bitcoin. It's just some random anonymous guy or gal figured out the double spend problem and solved the Byzantine general problem in an incredibly elegant way. And it's just like, somehow they came up with it. I don't know how, but they did. And, and you know, had they not come up with it, maybe nobody would have for another 20 years. Uh, another one I think might qualify in tech would be virtualization. So, you know, virtualization, I think, was just one of these ideas that was very transformational, but not necessarily predicated by external technology events. It was, there's a little bit of it, but, um, you know, it was in many ways a paradigm shift. So those are the, those are the things that I look for uh, in an insight is like, how do you connect those insights to potential futures that are not obvious today to people living in the present? Yeah. And what advice do you have for people? Because uh, you know, th- this group, this group is are people who are looking for those inflections, looking for those insights. How do they do it more systematically? And w- which, what are some uh, inflections, perhaps non-obvious ones that you're excited about today? So for example, you know, me, uh, what I'm excited about on the belief side is, is homeschool. And, and that, now that people are uh, having their, you know, kids inside, uh, or kids at their home, you know, realizing, hey, maybe uh, there's an opportunity to do this a little bit differently, or maybe sort of K-12 is babysitting in, in, in a different type of way, and maybe that presents new opportunities that, that weren't there previously. W- w- what are some for you? Yeah, for me, the goal is to get as super tangible as you can. So I'll give you an example. One of our, one of our folks is interested in uh, the opportunity for technology to solve problems for baby boomers as they age. And, um, and I'm like, okay, great. What kind of inflection is that? Okay. It's an adoption inflection. More baby boomers are going to use tech than they have in the past. And I'm like, okay, great. But like, let's, let's get very focused here. Are you saying that more baby boomers are going to use Facebook? Are you saying that more of them are going to use smartphones? Are you saying that more of them are going to use video chat? Are you saying that more of them are going to use, you know, something else? Oh, yes to these three, no to these two. Okay, for the ones that are yes, what's, I call it the Frodo, the from two. So what percent of baby boomers use Facebook now? What percent do you think will use it in five years? You want to get out of a mode of being kind of hand wavy about it and into a mode of saying, okay, I'm about to bet my insight on this inflection. And so I need to believe that the inflection is not just an enabler, but it's a capital I inflection, an inflection that you can't calibrate. It's kind of hard to argue it's that big. So that's, that's what we try to encourage people to do. Even if it's like, look, it's just kind of obvious. I'm like, humor me, right? Just like, just try, uh, just try to calibrate it. You know, so like doctors are going to do telemedicine across state lines. Calibrating that inflection would mean, I believe that the number of telemedicine visits practiced across state boundaries will be X number in five years. And now we can have a conversation about that that's very focusing. 
because now I'm not, now I'm not arguing with somebody's platitude. Now we're having a discussion about, okay, under what conditions would that inflection be true? And under what conditions might that not happen? And what would be the critical pivot points around which it would happen or not happen? So, so are, are there any non-obvious inflections that you're particularly excited about in, in tech or adoption, uh, adoption or, or, or beliefs? Oh, well, there's plenty, right? And I got to be careful about how many of them are secret squirrel that I can't talk about yet versus that would share. You know, the main ones I'm, I'm finding are around um, the, the, be- the belief inflections that could drive telemedicine, changes in work, uh, relocalizing supply chains, I, I think could be, you know, distance learning applied to homeschooling and other contexts, I think could be interesting. But um, what, I'm, what I'm really searching for right now is more technology inflections. You know, there's this idea that, you know, being early is as bad as being too late. And so how do you think about the timing of, of, of these inflections or the timing of sort of imagining these futures? Like, what, what type of inflection might you be looking for? for something like virtual reality or, or, or some other sort of emergency. Right, right. So maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe that's a good jumping off point to describe it. So you come up with a set of inflections and then you say, um, okay, now I need to get myself in a headspace where I'm thinking about living in the future rather than the present. Right. So, uh, and this is where backcasting come in, comes in. And so I like to say that when you backcast, so forecasting says I'm, I'm, projecting from the present forward. Backcasting says, I'm going to put myself into the future, identify potential alternative futures, and then work backwards to figure out what steps it would take to make that future a reality. And then as a founder, you start to gather, you know, all these different points out in the future I call insights. You start to gather these insights. And on some level, what is an insight? Really, it's a bet. It's a bet on a future that you believe is more likely than most of the world believes. So like most people think non-consensus and right is just having a different idea than other people have. Everybody in the world thinks we go right. I think we go left. I'm non-consensus and right. But to me, what non-consensus and right really is, is understanding that there's a potential future that is underpriced today, that's underappreciated for how plausible it is. And so I like to say there are three types of futures that we study. One is plausible, like Todd McKinnon at Okta. And he says, look, I'm head of engineering at Salesforce. I know all the important cloud customers. I know what all their problems are. I think cloud's going to become a thing. There's going to be a lot of important companies in the cloud. And I think if you could manage the problems that people are going to have with unified identity and other things, you could, there's a company there. And, you know, once you hear that from Todd, you kind of can't unsee it. And you're like, yeah, that that's, makes total sense to me. A possible future is more like Mark Andreessen at University of Illinois when he did the Mosaic browser. So he's living in the future. He's at a supercomputer lab at the University of Illinois, but he can't collaborate with other scientists. And so he, he builds Mosaic to make the internet immediately useful to him. But he, but he wasn't doing it at first to build a company. It was almost like an obsession that he just kind of kept following. Uh, Bob Metcalf at Xerox Park when he came up with Ethernet, similar thing. So, you know, at, at Xerox Park, everybody had a $100,000 computer on their desk and they were sharing the laser printer and they had WYSIWYG displays and all this stuff. Well, when Bob starts 3Com, he had an advantage because he'd lived in a time machine. 
And so he's like, well, of course, someday everybody's going to have a computer on their desk. Of course, someday everybody's going to want to share printers. Nobody else starting network equipment companies had that frame of reference. You know, so they were building like token ring cards for mainframe to workstation connectivity and stuff like that. And then the, the, the other type of future is what I like to call preposterous. And Elon Musk is the poster child. He says, I'm going to, I'm going to start a company that blasts rockets in outer space. And, uh, or I'm going to start a, a car company where there hasn't been a successful one in 50 years. But if you think about it, all of Elon's companies have been able by inflections. And what he does is he really assembles a, a group of inflections. You know, in the case of Tesla, battery inflections, sensor inflections, AI and ML. And, and you know, all of those things combined create the opportunity for him to assemble something that would be preposterous to most people living in the present. Most people would say, you're crazy to do that. And so what I like to say is when you're, when you're a founder, what you want to do is talk to people who are a combination of practitioners who know these inflections and they're living in the present around them. So like if you were doing fintech, you'd talk to product managers at Stripe and Square and stuff like that and say, what do you think of this inflection? If you were going to start a company to take on your company and use this from the ground up, what would you do? What would you build? But then what you also want to do is identify what I like to call seers. And seers are people who are living in the future and they're not necessarily grounded enough to build products. And then you ask them better questions. You ask them questions like, well, what are outcomes around this technology inflection that most people don't think can happen that you think are likelier to happen? Or what do most people think is going to happen that you don't think is going to happen? Or what would be good things to happen? What would be bad things to happen? And then you, you know, you try to get this list of seers. And so after you do these inflections, the next step is you come up with an insights journal based on the insights, you know, you're trying to gather earn secrets from these seers. Uh, and then over time you, you gather a bunch of insights and as a founder, it's a, it's a very uh, personal bet as to whether you start a company, right? Like you may believe that a rocket company could be started, but you're like, I'm just not the guy to start a rocket company. And so there's, it's highly personal about founder insight fit and a bunch of things. But I like to say, you know, you're kind of at the end of the insight development stage, you decide, you make a decision to step through the portal into the next beyond of customer development. And there's a head based decision, which is, why is this an underpriced opportunity in the market of ideas? And why am I uniquely suited to chase it? And why is my team uniquely situated to pull it off? But then there's this heart decision where you kind of say, fuck yeah, we're doing this. And so, you know, it's kind of, you want to have the, it makes theoretical sense to me and fuck yeah, I can't unsee it. I can't not do it. I'm losing sleep. Why haven't we started? Let's get on. Let's get on it. Totally. So let's use VR as an example, because I think it's an interesting one in that most people, you know, if you're a backcasting or seeing into the future would probably agree or will probably think, hey, VR, AR in some capacity will play a much bigger role in our lives than it does today. Um, but it's really just a question of when and, and how and in what capacity and, and what, what, what that looks like. Let's say we took that as, as given. Which inflections would you like or what are examples as it relates to VR of what you'd be looking for? Is it you know, a, a better headset, cheaper headset? Is it, you know, some belief or what, what do you think about that? Yeah. So I'd be like, okay, great. VR. So, so like, here's where most people get it wrong. They'll say, okay, I think VR is going to be big 
And so I'm going to go talk to a bunch of people and I'm going to see, is VR going to be big in architecture? Is it going to be big in, you know, home design, decorating? Is it going to be big in uh, games? Is it going to, you know, they start and then they ask people, what product do you think somebody will build based on VR in, in these contexts? The problem is that you're, you're, the point of departure of those conversations is living in the present because you're trying to find white space in markets. So, uh, and, and like I like to say that markets, startup markets are not like mapping a market is the wrong metaphor because you're starting a movement, right? You know, so like in a, in a company, which is not a startup, in a company, you're more like a Bible salesman when you think about selling and marketing. You're trying to find out who are all the Christians who want Bibles that I could sell to. But when you're, when you're a startup, you're more like, and by the way, I'm not trying to be religious here, but like, you're more like Jesus, right? And you're trying to find disciples. And the market is the accumulation of people who believe what you believe. And so, therefore, you can't analyze startup markets. They don't exist yet. And so, what we need to do is create a market based on the insight. How do you create a market based on insight? You find an inflection that is powerful enough that it will create a a different future. So back to your AR, VR example, I would say things like, okay, maybe technology inflections examples could be the next generation chip in the iPhone. Will it enable some breakthrough in uh, AR, VR capability? You know, if so, on what technology dimension factor would it enable a 10x improvement? Uh, adoption. Uh, how many VR headsets exist in the world today? Uh, how many would need to exist for it to become mainstream technology? What would need to change for that to happen? Is it pricing? Is it, you know, how fast will that adoption happen? And and why would that be? And, and if if you believe this is the adoption curve, when does it make sense for you to start a company, you know, to your earlier point on timing. But like what I, what I caution people about, people tend to too quickly try to jump to the answer of what the product is or what the market is. They, they lose the opportunity to put them to project themselves into the question. How about you mentioned finding the seer? How do you find the seer, you know, in an industry like healthcare or something or insurance or some sort of older uh, industry? What does that look like? The way I used to do it when I was a product manager, and, and most, most product managers who are effective, I've found, have this trait. I viewed my job as understanding who the seers were in my company and basically, quote, unquote, cheating off of them. And so, like, what, what you learn is, what, what is an entrepreneur really? On some level, an entrepreneur marries the impedance mismatch between the seers and the practitioners. You know, practitioners are practical, they want to know what's next, so what, what's the next product. Uh, seers, very often, if you try to get them to articulate the product that would succeed in this future, they get frustrated by that conversation. You know, so like some good seers that I've met are like science fiction authors or they're professors in academia or they're, you know, they might be a, a professor in a lab that has a big following of students who like to, to build things. Um, or it's people, you know, if I'm talking to the person that runs product marketing at Stripe or Square, let's say I was doing FinTech, or let's take, let's go back to ARVR. You go to somebody like Tony Parisi at uh, Unity and you ask them, okay, who are the seers where they just know the future just because they seem to know it. And we can't even explain why, but like if you had to cheat off of somebody, whose homework would you cheat on? 
uh, off of, you know, about the future. Uh, good present practitioners can spot a seer. And so you, you're trying to get this list of seers. And then when you, when you ask questions, you want to ask future-oriented questions, not present-oriented questions. That makes sense. How does this framework, the insight hacking, sort of connect or overlap with sort of you know broader sort of understanding around just evaluating markets more broadly? So you know when you do market analysis, people ask questions like, "Are you doing tops down analysis versus bottoms up?" or "How how are we evaluating uh, TAM and how much we can capture from it?" or "Is this market on the upswing or the downswing?" Uh, downswing? How do you think about some of those questions? Yeah. So the the first thing I should say is that. When you're when you're in zero to one mode, I'm very skeptical of the notion of TAM uh, because most great startups there is no market yet. You know what would have been the TAM for the Mosaic browser? I don't know, right? Or the Ethernet? Or uh, you know, I remember when we invested in Lyft when it was Zimride, we thought you know the most valuable ride sharing company ever has been Zipcar, and it exited for like 350 million. And, you know, we were investing in this company at like five and a half million post money. And we're like, you know, if things go our way, let's say it's worth half of Zipcar and it exits for 150 million, we can still do pretty well. And so like, there was just no way to, there, there's no way anybody could have imagined what the market for ride sharing would have looked like. There was, there was no way to have a comparable, there was no, like, and on some level, if, if you can analyze the TAM too precisely, I would argue that's a bad sign, not a good sign. What I like to say is when you go out into the future, you want to put your inflections through different frames of reference about the future. So like one frame that I like is, you know, this, you know, plausible, possible, preposterous futures. But the other thing I like is a lot of the Clay Christians and stuff. Who are the incumbents today and who are the customers today? Who's, who's unserved? Who's overshot? Who's undershot? You know, like kind of some of the, the Clay Christensen ideas that's one framing. Another framing would be, you know, how do you think society is going to change? How do you think employment's going to change? How do you, you know, all these types of things, or you might say, um, how might business models change? You know, if you're selling into an environment where the incumbents SAP and they price per seat, is there a world where the right product should be priced by the transaction? And so you're trying to, what I like to say is you don't want to be, you know, McKinsey has this term MISI, mutually exclusive, completely exhaustive, I think is what it stands for. Like I, I try not to be too messy about it in this. It's almost like I'm throwing the kitchen sink at the inflection and I'm saying, okay, jobs to be done theory. How might it apply? Undershot, overshot, unserved customers. How might it apply? Resource processes and values of incumbents. How might it apply? Sociographic trends, psychographic trends. How might it apply? you're trying to, you're, you're in a mode where you're trying to create, you start by being very divergent rather than convergent. You're saying, no, no, no ideas off the table. We're just going to generate tons of ideas that aren't obvious. The only, the only thing that is a criteria is it's an idea that most people would not currently think is obvious. And what's the key to doing the, the jobs to be done framework well, because I think it's a very powerful idea and, and it, it is, um, not as intuitive as it seems sometimes in the people sometimes. So here's how I would think about it, Eric. I'd say, okay, if you imagine that there's a technology that's going to improve tenfold in the next few years, it's going to be able to do some job massively better because it's 10 times more powerful, right? And so what job could that technology perform 
at a 10 X level of improvement. I find that that, you know, the market flows, you arrive at markets based on having insights like that. You know, you, you start to realize, okay, great. Here's a set of jobs that it could perform 10 times better. Who would be desperate to have those jobs performed at that level of improvement? What people in the world, what audience segments, and then you kind of, and then you arrive at markets from that. What most people do is they're kind of, in my opinion, they're kind of unimaginative in their segmentation, right? They say, I'm going to, I'm going to talk to enterprises and SMBs and, you know, different types of, it's almost like they classify customer types and go talk to them about inflections. I don't find that as, as useful. I like to segment around jobs to be done or segment around undershot, overshot, unserved customers, or I like to segment around the incumbent vendors uh, have this type of value delivery system. What if you did a flippening of the value chain? Where might a customer prefer the value to be delivered that way versus the incumbent way? Do you have a framework for falsifying uh, insights or, 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 you know, sort of opinions about these these inflections or, or any sort of things to watch out for in terms of, you know, false, uh, false positive and false negative? Yeah, what I like to do is once you start to gather insights, I like to come back to the present and talk to the practitioners. And the practitioners will usually be skeptical. And what you want to what, what see is, are they skeptical about the first principles reasoning behind your insight? Or are they skeptical for a reason you hadn't thought of that you, you should listen to? And so if their skepticism doesn't answer your first principles reasoning, that might be a more positive signal than a negative signal, right? Because great insights, most people won't like the insight uh, by definition. The, the more people in the present who like your insight the more plausible it is. And because human beings are conditioned to like things, that means it's more likely that it's close to what an incumbent's already doing, which means you don't have enough of a value breakthrough for a customer who's desperate. How do you think about domain expertise more broadly? You know, Keith Raboy famously is um, somewhat dubious that it's, that it's necessary for a team to have it in a, in a space like healthcare or even fintech. Uh, in, in that, and he, he's come from teams that had first principles uh, approach and were able to be successful. And sometimes, as you just mentioned, the experts don't necessarily, uh, they can't see into the future. At the same time, uh, the way, you know, software is eating the rest of the world in the built world, which, you know, is, is, is been outside of our domain and, and might require more expertise than ideas did in, in the past. Where, where do you sort of net on domain expertise in terms of uh, how important is it that your teams have it? And if so, are there certain spaces where it's more important than less? I think it really depends. Um, I find in uh, B2B markets where you have some type of a direct sales component, quite often it's good to have domain expertise because like the customer needs to believe, you know, like Todd McKinnon, customer kind of needs to believe that you can do the job. And so, you know, when you talk to them, you got to be able to speak in a language that they understand and that reflects that you understand their world and their problem. Uh, I think that the more the more disconnected the the less person to person distribution is the the less pr- important perhaps that is but it, but it's it's interesting i i like to i like to say that there's a few things that you want i think you want domain expertise if there's some aspect of your business that involves compliance or staying out of avoidable trouble right so like 
you don't want to have some uh, newbie writing your legal contracts or like ha- figuring out how you're going to get FDA approval if that's required. So, you know, if you're trying to reduce downside exposure, you recruit for experience. If you're trying to accelerate upside opportunity, I think you're trying to find undiscovered talent with amazing uh, upside um, entrepreneurial sort of jazz band DNA that is and people who are remarkably all in. And then I think your leader needs to also be a strong persuader. And, And like, here's why, like, you have people who are living in the present, the practitioners are just normal people. And then you have people living in the present, the seers, and there's an impedance mismatch, right? Like seers don't want to come back to the present and they don't want to chart the steps back to the present. That's not where they, that's not how they roll. And then practitioners think that people living in the future are kind of wacky. Uh, and there's an element of truth to that. And so if you think about it, what is an entrepreneur? An entrepreneur is like a time traveler. And they, they project themselves into the future, they discover insights, and then they come back to the present and they use their persuasion skills to persuade a set of people to move from the present to a better future that they're able to articulate. And so that better future, you should be pretty dogmatic about, but you're pragmatic about the steps to get there. You realize when you come back to the present that most people won't like your idea so the, the, the challenge is to find the subset of people who do, who are in on the secret with you. And as you accumulate people that join your movement, your idea goes from heresy to the conventional wisdom as the movement accelerates. And now all of a sudden, your market can be studied like a normal market and your company can be evaluated like a normal company. How, how do you differentiate, if at all, between sort of the going from zero to one like uh, your investments in uh, Twitter or Justin T, these things just totally didn't exist before in, in that construct versus sort of going from, you know, one to 10 or, you know, a 10x better health insurance thing or, or fintech product or, or something that exists, but just has the opportunity to be, you know, 10x or, or, or much more better or sort of repackaged or bundled or unbundled in a, diff- in a different way. How, how do you differentiate between the, those, uh, those approaches in, in the ideating or, or valuing? Yeah. So, so I like to say that, okay, so we've talked about this a little bit already, but a a startup's not a company. So then like, what is it? Right. And I like to say it's a um, awesome team and a sequence of breakthroughs. And so the breakthroughs I think are what you're getting at to hear. Um, the, The breakthrough sequence is the insight breakthrough, which is what we've been talking about here and I think that the tool to get the insight breakthrough is backcasting, right? So, uh, you know, Mark wrote this, Mark Andreessen wrote this good essay about it's time to build. And I'm like, this is a perfect time to introduce the backcasting framework because entrepreneurs, just like they have customer development as a tool for getting product market fit, they're going to want tools for knowing what they should build, right? And so, so I was like, all right, that's, that's what I'm going to work on. So the insight breakthrough comes from the tools of backcasting. The um, and the metaphor is the time traveler, and then um, then you shift modes and you get into the sort of the product market fit breakthrough. And in the product market fit breakthrough, you're saying I have an insight, and um, now I'm trying to build something unique that people are desperate for, and is the basis of a scalable business model. You know what what Ann would call so the 
the exit criteria for this phase is what Ann would call, my partner Ann Mirko would call minimum viable company. And, yeah. um, and so this zero to one uh, product market fit um, breakthrough phase, you're, you're in value hacking mode because you want to hack value before you hack growth, right? If you, if you try to hack growth before the truth, you know, value hacking is very much of a truth seeking expedition rather than a sales centric expedition. You're, you're trying to find the truth of your value that's compelling to someone desperate. And then growth becomes the act of syndicating the truth because if the value proposition is not true, you'll have to throw money at the gaps in your value to create demand and sell the product. Uh, whereas if the value proposition is objectively true, now all you have to do is to teach the market to buy rather than to persuade the market to buy. And so then you shift modes into the growth breakthrough. The growth breakthrough is a fundamental shift from zero to one, you know, MacGyver, James Bond, Wonder Woman, invent something, juke and jive, value hack, to now you're like Mark Watney on Mars. And I like to say, you know, Mark, excuse my language here, but he said, I got to science the shit out of this. And so now you got to, you have to repeat what works with a predictable pattern. And one to X mode is figure out what works, do it over and over again in a predictable way. And, and now you're beginning to scale. And as a team, you have to go through the kind of this gut wrenching transition because, you know, the, the decision to d- go from, value first to growth first, kind of like a forward pivot. You're going to have to change your team. You're going to have to change your objectives. You're going to have to change your whole idea of what value creation is from a go forward basis. And it's a little bit like Hertz car rental. If you back up, your tires explode. So like, you know, the decision to grow is a very profound decision to get over your skis and go all in on growth first. And to, and to as a team, to emotionally decide I'm willing to make the changes that my team necessary to predictably execute rather than just to, to um, learn about breakthroughs. So you're over time, you progress from being completely a jazz band to being more parts of your business or like a marching band. And the people in that part of your business, they want sheet music and they want to, they want to march in precise formations and if you if if you don't provide that for them as a leader, that's a leadership failure in the growth phase. And so, you know, in the growth mode, I like to say the metaphor is an engine and marketing, sales, product economics, customer success, upsell, all of those things become like gears in a machine that operate in harmony together to produce the growth output that you desire. So you say, I want to grow this fast burning this much money and then you instrument all the gears in your machine to guarantee that that would happen if they operated together. And then you want to have owners of those gears who aren't founders who um, think like entrepreneurs and uh, achieve the output required of each of those gears and then have a process that alerts you immediately if you're off track. Cause like a lot of startups, they crush zero to one and then they go raise a series a and they flame out in one to X because they, they still act like zero to one operators and, and they, they do too many new products, too many new markets, their, their growths, they don't have consistent playbooks for sales to execute towards. And so it goes from being awesome, everybody in it together exercise to being kind of a screwed up mess. 
and everybody's at the founder's door in a line and everybody's saying, <laughs> why can't we focus anymore? Why can't we make decisions anymore? Why can't we decide whether we're going right or left anymore? Those are all symptoms of a company that's not succeeding in one to X mode that hasn't, hasn't made the necessary adjustments to evolving the, the, the type of band that they are. Yeah. No, I, I love that from yeah, zero to one, one X or 10 version of a, of a company. I'm, I'm curious to ask you in a different way, which is, is there something different when you're thinking about sort of these inflections, when you're thinking about an idea that's going from zero to one, i.e. something that totally didn't exist before versus something that exists and is just, uh, you're just making it better? Or, or, or yeah, so I'm not a I'm not a big fan of make something better kind of startups, right? So so I'm I'm probably not your guy to talk to because I pass on all those. Uh, like I I basically believe fundamentally that uh, you you never want to be the best, you want to be the only, and this is where inflections can be so powerful because if you if you did the work in the inflections and insight phase and you connect it to a product. With, with a value proposition that people are desperate for, it's axiomatic that you'll be able to perform a job with your product at a breakthrough level of improvement that won't just seem like it's better. It will, it'll seem 10 times better, which now it won't even seem like it can be considered in the same discussion. And so like on some level, if you follow the sequence correctly, the lack of such a value proposition, it's either because we didn't get it right in the insight phase or we weren't focused in our value hacking on finding the desperate customer. And, and to go back to inflection for a second, I know you'll send us some templates, but yeah. it, is it as simple as, as a, just talk to the people in the present and talk to the seers? Are there, are there other ways by which people can get, you know, really smart on, on understanding uh, or having unfair advantage and getting sort of, you know, regulatory inflections or adoption or technology? Yeah. yeah and, it, and it kind of depends. So the, the, I should have also mentioned that when you're an investor and you're an entrepreneur, there is an important difference in, in how you do stuff. So as an investor, I'm, I'm investing in the founder, right? So I don't have to ultimately come up with the idea. So when I do backcasting, what I'm trying to do is collect a set of insights. And my hope is that an entrepreneur will come in and pitch me sometime and my mind will be ready to understand, whoa, that's, that is an interesting idea. You know, this person's on to something. And so the way I used to do that was um, I would just start to gather these insights and I would talk to seers. So like when I would talk to Evan Williams back before he was starting Odeo um, and then then he eventually did Twitter with Jack, but I didn't come in and say, so what do you think is going to happen in podcasting? Right. It was more like I'm, I'm doing some backcasting work around this thing that people refer to as web 2.0 and these are some of the different futures I think might come about if, if this plays out the way I think it might. And here's why I think that. And now Ev can sort of look at the list that I have and he could say, huh, well, I just disagree with that. Or, hmm, never thought of that before. Or have you thought of this? And, and then I'm like, well, wait a minute. Have I thought of this? Tell me what this is. Tell me more about that. Like, why, why should I be thinking about that? Why did you bring that up? And then I just start taking furious notes. And then, and then when you go talk to the next person, you've got that added to your list. You know, if you have 50 conversations like that with the right people, you're going to get pretty smart about the area pretty quickly. You know, pr- pretty soon you're going to know things that not everybody else knows, or you're going to, you're going to, you're going to know, 
a bundle of things that very few people know as a, as a bundle of things. Now, here's where, where the difference is. As an investor, I can keep saying, I'm just going to keep gathering insights and stack rank them. But as a founder, I've kind of got to pick one. So as a founder, I've got to decide, when do I get to an insight where I'm just unbelievably all in? And I just, I can't not do it. And so people like often say to me, how do you know you have the insight that you should do? And I'm like, if you have to ask the question, you haven't found it yet. So like when you find it, it just has this way, you know, I knew like before I started Floodgate, it was completely obvious to me once I saw it and couldn't unsee it, that there was a gap between angels and VCs and that 500,000 was the new 5 million. If you started a fund that wrote $500,000 checks, you'd have a ton of customers for it. And then people would say, well, what would you have done if you couldn't raise the money or, and it just didn't even occur to me. I wouldn't raise it. Right. I was just like, this idea is right. I just, the only thing I hope is that I'm not too late. I hope somebody hasn't figured it out before I have, but like, that's the, that's the mental space that you're in when you found one, you're, 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 you go, you shift from looking for the insight to saying, Oh shit, I hope somebody hasn't figured this out before me. I better get going. I can't, I can't waste another day, not chasing this. Totally. You were talking about the difference between founders and investors in this framework. How should founders be thinking about this framework in, in pitching uh, to, to you or other VCs? Is it make sure to emphasize which, which inflection or inflections? Uh, and is it usually one big one or is it usually a couple? Or how should founders be thinking about this? Yeah, so here's my advice to founders about how to pitch. Uh, so, in, and you might, you might guess that I, I get involved in this a lot, right? Because I work with our founders when they raise their A. In general, I recommend the following. I recommend a slide that says, here's what we do. So like a lot of pitches, they have like four or five slides before they tell you what, what you do. And it gives the VC, like, so for example, let's say, you, let's say you're uh, selling a solution for FinTech. You know, the first slide might say, FinTech is going from X to Y and changes in finance and blah, 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 APIs and all these companies and customer preferences. And it's like, as a VC, I still don't know what you do. And I might just decide that I don't agree with one of the points that you make in the first three slides. And now I'm arguing with you about one of these points and we haven't even got to what you do yet. And so now the meeting's in a rabbit hole. And it's like, now you don't even have a chance to talk about what you came to talk about. And so like, what I like to say is, if you tell me what you do, now I can relax. Now I don't have five threads open in my mind of, well, I made this point, they made this point, they made this point. I still don't know what you do, but I haven't closed those threads. And so, hmm. And by the way, I like to say, say what you do, assuming that the VC knows literally nothing. So like, for example, don't say we're Airbnb, we're a market space for unused housing. I don't know what that is. Say, we're Airbnb, we let people rent an extra room in their house. Uh Oh, that's what you do. So that's the first thing. What do you do? And I I find that a lot of people struggle to say what they do in terms that somebody who knows nothing would understand. Why is that important? Well, if you explain it to a VC and they don't understand what you do, they won't admit it. You know, like if you say a VC, okay, are you with me so far? We're a marketplace for unused housing. Most VCs have too much pride and they'll say, yeah, okay, I'm with you, but they don't know what the heck you just said, right? So like, I, I still don't know what you do, but like, I'm pretending I know. And so then the next slide I like is it's where it comes fr- from the inflections. I like to say, uh, what's our secret? The way I like to frame it is, 
there's something that we believe here that not everybody believes. If you don't think this makes sense, nothing about what I'm going to say going forward is going to make any sense to you. And so, you know, I could probably even give you your time back if, if we can't get in sync on whether this is an interesting secret or not. And then, and then from there, you know, you've got a lot of different options, right? You could get more into the product, into the traction, into the team. But like I, I, I find the best pitches are the ones that can say what we do, what's our secret, what have we done so far tangible in terms of traction. If you can get those ideas out there in five to 10 minutes or less, you're way more likely to be successful in my view. Totally. And then, and then the other thing, sorry, I'm probably talking too much here, but like the other thing I, I recommend to people is don't start out by making slides, start out by knowing what you want to say, like come up with like a sequence of 10 sentences that frame your argument. And then once you get agreement on, okay, this is a, this is a compelling argument, then it's almost like a tweet storm. You know, imagine your pitch is a tweet storm. Then you say, okay, this tweet storm is tight. Now I'm going to back into what, what would be the slides to emphasize the points of the tweet storm. Totally. I want to talk about the, the concept or sort of the, the Peter Thiel approach versus the Keith Raboy approach in terms of the Peter Thiel approaches sort of own a niche and then uh, expand from there. So, you know, Facebook starts at Harvard, then expands from there. Whereas the Keith Raboy, so Peter Thiel is building vertical solution. Keith Raboy is more a horizontal solution, pick a dominant market, like, you know, or a giant market like real estate or, or healthcare and build just a full stack, uh, vertically integrated, you know, solution that serves sort of horizontal side of customers. Do you, do you have a preference uh, there? And, and what's your advice generally for thinking about, uh, you know, picking the right first customer and getting that initial wedge? Yeah. So, so um, I like both of them a lot, right? I, I like both Peter and Keith quite a bit uh, and good friends with them and, and respect them both. Um, for me and my own preferences, I'm closer to Peter's sensibilities here. So, um, so like I believe that uh, most of the really great breakthrough ideas that they they do have an insight that's based on a different future. And so now backcasting is let's come back to the present. So like uh, like here's the metaphor I like to say. So it, let's say you're climbing a really tall tree. Backcasting says start by putting yourself up to the top of the tree and looking downwards. And so then you visualize the branches, specific branches you have to climb to get to the top of the tree. Starting by living in the present, you go to the next most appealing branch. And sometimes you find yourself out on a limb and you, now you can't get to the top of the tree because you did the optimal next thing, but not the optimal long-term thing, if that makes sense. And so what, what you want to do then is, your first niche is kind of like the best first branch to climb up that tree. And um, I like to say that there are five elements of a good niche. There is common desperation, you know, so there's a set of people out there with the same kind of desperation that would be cross-referenceable to each other. And very often I find desperation can be addressed with a job to be done you know, kind of Clay Christian theory. And then the second thing I like to find is tangible results. You know, not I'm going to make your customers happier. I'm going to give you peace of mind, but it's like um, um, I'm going to triple your lead gen in 90 days, or I'm going to double your NPS score in six months. You know, something, something, the what's in it for me equation. 
And it should feel like a break into desperation. You should have a breakthrough tangible result. And then the third thing is a believable solution. And so the, the, uh, the customer has to believe that you can deliver on the value proposition you're promising. But equally important, uh, they have to believe that they can deliver themselves. So like a lot of customers, like they think that you could deliver, but they may not believe that they have the organizational capability to implement the software, or they may believe it's going to take too much training, or they may believe they've got bigger priorities, not enough on the front burner. This is the hard part because a lot of times they won't tell you that. Customers don't like to tell you, my organization not capable enough to do this. But if, if they don't perceive that they can deliver on their side of it, that, that it will be an objection that will be hard to overcome that they won't tell you about. And then the fourth thing is tangible, precisely defined targets. So like when I was at Tivoli um, back in the 90s, we'd be in a meeting and people would say, well, um, we sell to people who are rolling out SAP with a deadline. I think that the SAP customer wants X. And I would say, I'm, I'm not really interested in what the quote unquote SAP customer wants. What does Oscar Clavins at Nova Gas want? Because he's an SAP guy rolling it out in nine days. What did Oscar say when you asked him? Oh, I haven't asked him yet. And I'm like, all right, well, then what are we, what's this meeting about then? What are we doing here? And so like, um, you know, you don't want to just have the personas. You want to have the exact names of people you're talking to. And then the last thing I've never really figured out uh, a good term for it. It's, it's your different, not better claim, but it's like um, it's something that causes people to root for you. It's a little bit of a, I call it the WTF element. Um, so like with Lyft, it was the pink mustache. So like does Lyft have pink mustaches on the cars now? No, but when they nailed their initial niche, they did. Why is that? Well, when you're a startup, you want, you want the early adopters of your secret to be rooting for you. And you want them to be biased towards hoping you win. And so when these cars would go around in San Francisco with a pink mustache, people would just be like, huh, I wonder, wonder what's up with that. What's, what's up with these pink mustaches? And the people in our audience that we cared about were going to be the types of people who said, you know what? I think I'm going to check that out. I'm just going to try it. And we knew that if they tried it, if we, if we got to them within five minutes, they'd be a customer for life. And so, uh, you know, like, what is your company's pink mustache? You're like at Floodgate, some of you may have heard of this term thunder lizard, right? Like I say that we look for thunder lizards that hatch from radioactive atomic eggs. They swim across the ocean, destroy cities, breathe fire, swipe holes in buildings, eat trains like they're sausage links. You know, I mean, Floodgate's one of 850 VC firms. But like the, the thunder lizard metaphor was just a way to get people that had the same values that we had to say, you know what, I just kind of dig those floodgate folks, right? I, I just like how they think they, they get me. And so, you know, you want something about your business that is, you know, like Jerry Garcia of the Grateful Dead, like the pink mustache on Lyft, something that emanates and flows from your advantage, you know, when Tesla, when you self-drive, you double-click the cruise control stock. It goes boom, boom. They don't call it fancy cruise control. They call it autopilot. You got these cars on a map and it's doing cool shit. And you're like, man, this is a car from the future. And why do you want that? Because when a competitor comes in, you want people to, when the competitor says, I can do that too, you want the customer. It's kind of like when a customer says, yeah, I know you can do that too, but it's not an iPhone. 
you know, you want to, you want to be, yeah, but it's not Lyft. Yeah, but it's not a Tesla autopilot. Um, and that, that gives you the ability to stick, but it also lets your advantages be transmitted by word of mouth rather than spending money on marketing programs. I, uh, I think that's a, that's a perfect place to, to wrap. I want to be sensitive to, to, to your time. If and when you are building a, 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 a very exciting startup that has, uh, has some traction and you've, you've benefited from, from some of this, Definitely consider Floodgate as one of your top investors. We uh, we work with them a lot, uh, but we've had, been lucky to work with both Mike and Ann and have them uh, here in the OnDeck community. And uh, uh, Mike, on behalf of uh, OnDeck, thank you so much for taking the time to, to chat with us today. This, is, this has been fantastic. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc. 